Hello, friends, and welcome to So Poetry, the Poetry Conversation Podcast. Uh, my name is Michael Zuloff, and I am your host, and I am absolutely thrilled to be talking with y'all again uh, so soon. The last episode was the first back from a long hiatus, um, and I'm trying to stay on a streak of talking to people on a regular basis. Um, and I am unbelievably excited today to have this poet as a guest. Um, my guest today is Andrea Carter-Brown, uh, who is a poet, an editor, and the author of three previous collections of poetry, uh, Domestic Karma, which was uh, released by Finishing Line Press in 2018, The Disheveled Bed by Kavan Carey Press in 2016, and uh, Brook and Rainbow, which was the winner, winner of the 2000 Sow's, Ears, Sow's Ear Poetry Review Chapbook Competition. Um, Andrea has also won numerous awards, including the Gustav Davidson Memorial Award from the Poetry Society of America, uh, the Thin Air Poetry Prize, uh, the River Oak Review Poetry Prize, and a ton of other ones. Uh, her poetry has appeared in the Gettysburg, Gettysburg Review, uh, Plowshares, Southwest Review, Five Points, River Sticks, Atlanta Review, and again, among many, many others. Um, and, very excitedly, Andrea has just published a new collection through The Word Works, uh, titled September 12th, which is about her personal experience, among other things, uh, her personal experience with the tragedy that befell New York on 9-11. Uh, it was released for the 20th anniversary and is, among other things, things that we'll be talking about today. Uh, so, Andrea, welcome to So Poetry. I'm very, very excited to talk to you today. Thank you, Michael. What a lovely introduction. I'm, I'm delighted to be talking with you as well. Um, Thanks for Oh, of course. Um, I'm, it's always really, it's really uh, honoring, or it's, it's an honor and humbling, like a lot of other things in my life uh, that I've experienced, that's sort of the dualness of that. When I get to talk to just poets that I don't know, because the vast majority of the guests that I've had on my podcast have been poets that I, that I know personally and have experienced their work. And it's always really, it's really a thrill to, to talk with people that, that like, I, I don't, no, this is my first time talking with them because it's it's always a dream of mine. Uh, I don't know if this is an introvert thing or what, but to have to meet someone and then to have a really interesting in-depth conversation about a topic that we're both passionate about. And when I get to have that, it's like that's the best thing to have. And when I get to talk to poets, is immediately get to talk about poetry. So this is it's always a thrill. Um, so before we get to talking about September twelfth. Um, I wanted to ask a few things poetry related um, and maybe poetry adjacent. Uh, the first of which is um, how did poetry happen for you in your life? Like, did it come? Yeah, I guess just what was what was your experience with poetry and sort of when when did it start for you? Well, a loving poetry happened pretty young. Uh, my I had a mother who uh, gave me poetry from the time I could read. She was herself not well educated and not a reader. And I, for the life of me, she's gone now, so I never got to talk to her about this. Hmm. How she intuited that this would, that poetry would speak to me and how she came to nurture that, it's sort of mis mysterious and wonderful. Throughout my adolescence, she every Christmas, she gave me an inscribed collection of poems. Wow. Emily Dickinson, the complete Emily Dickinson, the complete E. Cummings, Baudelaire's Les Fleurs du Mal. Um, <laughs> it's, 
imagine. I'm sure she had no idea what was in it. But anyway, um, <laughs> and I have most of those books. Um, and I loved poetry, uh, especially my adolescence, where it really spoke to me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a voracious reader, period. Um, and, uh, but um, the poetry that spoke to me was so perfect and beautiful that I didn't, I couldn't imagine writing it myself. So I studied it in college. Okay. I prepared for a, I guess what would have been an academic career teaching poetry. Um, but I, I pretty quickly decided that I didn't want to be a teacher and, um, to let the cat out of the bag, I bag, I had a business career for about mm, 12 or 13 years where I did accounting for small creative businesses. Um, I come from a family of bookkeepers and math teachers, and so it's sort of hardwired into me. But at the end of that period, I was um, increasingly unhappy um, and felt like this was not the life that I wanted to have. This is not the me that I always wanted to be. And um, I, I decided to write a biography of a very famous person for my first literary project. And of course it didn't go well because I had never written anything. <laughs> uh, I didn't even initially speak the language which this person spoke and wrote in. Mm -hmm. um, but I love doing research. I love libraries. I traveled to Germany to research this person. Anyway, long story short, I hit writer's block on that, <laughs> not surprisingly. And uh, during that time, coincidentally, a friend invited me to a poetry reading at the 92nd Street Y. I had never been to a poetry reading. I was in my early 30s. I had never heard of this poet. She was a, it's her name is uh, Mary Jo Salter. Um, she was reading from her first award-winning book, Henry Purcell in Japan. And uh, all of this material, which was rumbling around inside of me, spilled out. I started writing at the reading in the dark room, scribbling on whatever piece of paper I could find. Um, and I never finished the biography. I, I knew right away that this is, this is where my bliss was. Of course, it was also where my frustration was because yep. it was a lot harder than it seemed mm -hmm. in those, in those heady days of things just spilling out of me. <laughs> so, um, but, but I haven't looked back. I've never regretted it, even though as we were saying earlier, you know, poetry is the Pluto of the arts world. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's no expectation of, unless you teach in academia, which has its own yep. uh, uh, issues mm -hmm. with the creative life. Yep. Um, 
there's uh, you're not going to make money as a poet. No, which is a really weird because I, I have a friend um, who just moved to New York to go to uh, to do an MFA up there. She, she's an amazing visual artist. She does. I don't know if it's technically mixed media, but um, when I knew her in uh, she went to Micah. She was doing. She was incorporating like coffee grounds and organic materials into her oh. into her paints, um, and creating these like huge, lavish, just monstrous pieces. Um, and it's it's really interesting to me that there are, I mean, as as a poet myself, feeling on the outside, sort of looking in on the the people that can make a living as like doing the art that they do, which I feel like comes with probably its own set of challenges and its own headaches and its own frustrations and own dangers of when the work or when, when your passion and your, um, I guess your artistic practice shifts into, I need to do this in order to make a living the, where the boundary between doing things because you want to do it and doing things because you need to make the money, like where that intersection comes into place. But it's still, it's just amazing to me. Like, I I have no doubt in my mind that if she if she encounters the right people and gets has one or two right opportunities, she could she could just do make art for the rest of her life and be fine. And that astounds me because I could never conceive <laughs> yes. of funding my life being a poet. Which I don't know. I guess in a way is freeing that there's there's not these constraints on it that i feel like i have to be writing in a particular way or i have to be producing books or being on the writing circuit or always submitting things i can just it can just be it can be a personal thing that i do that event will spell out occasionally and interact intersect other people's lives but it is very much a this is a thing that i do because it's a way that i process and experience the world and i can't imagine moving through life without having this thing that I can lean on to be like, Oh, okay, let me, let me write about this or let me capture this experience so I can return to it at some point because memories for me are really ephemeral and they kind of vanish at will. Um, but. Well, I think, I think there is a, a, a liberation in that divorce. Um, and, um, but it also makes me very sad. What can I say? Yeah. It's, um, I, when I was, um, um, had started publishing my poetry, I didn't have a book out yet. I, um, during that period, I was living in an incredibly small New York City apartment, not the one I was living in on 9 mm-hmm. 11. And um, in order to have privacy, because I was sharing that apartment with another person, um, I started going to colonies. And I had many very productive experiences at colonies. Um, and it it sort of saved me as a writer. I, um, and uh, the, one, of the, one of the residencies was at um, McDowell. And in at the dinner table one night, uh, there were, everybody else there, or so it seemed to me, was far 
more successful than me. Some of them were even writers whose work I had read and bought and, you know, and so they were coming from a place of what you were just talking about, of that the confidence that comes from getting recognized and mm-hmm. having that success. And, um, but most writers have day jobs and the day jobs are not in, are not particularly creative to use that word pretty loosely. Yep. And um, one of these writers who worked as an editor of a very famous magazine at the time uh, asked me what my day job was. And I was still working as an accountant for these little businesses which, believe me, was a lot better than being an adjunct. (laughs) I mean, I made way more per hour, and I didn't have to, you know, I had this this other outlet for my mental activity. And they they actually, for a long time, they fed each other. Mm -hmm. Um, I would get a lot of new poems done during tax season, believe it or not, because my mind was fizzing along with numbers and... Well, but I loved words, so then it would fizz along with words. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this writer, when she heard that I was an accountant, completely dismissed me as a fellow fellow at this colony. And I was angry and I was heartbroken. Um, and I think it doesn't say something very good about her that she did that. But I don't think that reaction is that common. Yeah. Is that uncommon is what I meant to say. Yes. Um, yes. I, I, and, I, and I feel like that, that fits in with what we were taught or what you had mentioned before we started recording that there is definitely a an existent class system within poetry communities sort of at large, but also, you know, particular poetry communities um, and that feels very much sort of a a, uh, a manifestation of that that position exactly. of that like oh you know oh you're an accountant oh so you're not a real poet it's like well I'm, I'm a I make cabinets I'm a cabinet maker as my day job um, and I like it has get it's the reason that I've, I've continued to do that job for as long as I have is that it gives me time like i leave when i leave work all of my work is there i don't have to think about it i physically can't take any of it home with me so any time that i'm not at work is my time i can use however it is that i want um i also have the ability the really wild ability to just vanish like i did a, a month residency in vermont while i was working there it was just like i'm gonna be gone for june he's like my boss was like okay see you in a month and I came, I went away, I did a residency, I wrote 30 poems in 30 days, and I came back and got right back to making cabinets. Um, so I, I definitely understand the, like with, with your experience with accounting, the sort of, that they feed each other, that that they give you, because it's not just, like, I would love to be a poetry editor. That is, that's a, a, a goal or an aspiration that I have that I would like to attain at some point in my life. But as I mentioned again, sort of before we were recording, I, I run a small press, so I am actively a poetry editor, and I really what? wonder if I did that as a as a as my profession, if I would still have the energy or the momentum or just the interest to be a poetry editor on my own time. And 
I, I don't know. I don't, but until that I get the opportunity maybe to pursue that as a career, I don't really have to worry about that. Like I can make cabinets all day and come home and just read poetry and edit it at night. And like that, that works that there's a, you know, I don't know. There's a, the, I think, I think younger, the younger generations like millennials and maybe the, the generation Z are probably, it feels like the first maybe generations at large that the idea of what you do as a career is not the most defining trait about you as a person. Um, cause I, I can't, it feels like my parents' generation, like that is, that was the ingrained thing that what it is that you do is kind of like who you are and it establishes all of these things, which I guess maybe goes back to the class thing that it, it, is a sort of shorthand for other people to know sort of where you fall in these particular hierarchies and how much, how much respect and uh, magnanimity that they have to give you at any given time when they, when they encounter you. Um, well, I've definitely experienced that firsthand and I completely agree with you. I think that um, uh, even more limiting is the idea that I grew up, the umbrella I grew up under is that you had a career. Yes. Yes. Even even saying in, you know, doing something for a while and saying, well, I want to do something else mm -hmm. and either retooling or or, you know, going out into that world and learning it. Um, and the fact that you could have a restless mind and spirit and and, you know, the the community that I grew up in, which to some degree is the same kind of community, was the same kind of community on 9-11 as it was when I was growing up, the town that I write a lot about in this book. Glen Rock, correct? Glen Rock, New yes. Jersey. It was a uh, commuter town that funneled workers into Wall Street because that was where the trains went. All around New York, whether if, if you live on Long Island, the trains come into Midtown West. If you live in Westchester, the trains come into Midtown East. The bus station is on the West Midtown. Um, and some of the New Jersey commuter trains go to Hoboken. And from there, there used to be ferries and now there's the underground tubes. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them go to Midtown. Uh, but that, if having lived in New York and worked in New York for a long time, you saw that the the industries were largely populated by the commuter feeding pool. Wow. And Glenrock had two train stations, and both train stations went to Hoboken. And so most of my friends' fathers, I'm sorry to say, it was almost all fathers mm -hmm. then worked in downtown Manhattan, uh, worked in by 9-11, worked in the World Trade Center, mm -hmm. worked on Wall Street. And um, uh, uh, so, but there, the constrictions of that life and the uh, effect on family life. I looked around me, I just thought it was, what can I say, horrible. Yeah, well, I think, 
I think that in a weird way, it feels like divorce or the, the sort of widespread availability and gradual acceptance of divorce also was a sort of that idea of breaking the sort of, I don't know, like what, what at the time I think was seen as a fundamental and foundational aspect of family life that these units like you you found a career you stayed in like my both my parents are engineers and they started out as engineers and they retired as engineers that you know my mom like thought about going back to school to be to be a math teacher um in between engineering jobs but you know wound up back in engineering um but that idea of like you you go to go to college you study you get a degree in the career that you want you get that as a, you get a job in that in that field and then that is your job and then similarly with marriage it's like you you marry a person and that is the person that you were going to be with yes. and like in some instances it's like okay i mean i probably more often than not most instances it's like yeah okay that this works but in the event that it's not working you never it doesn't feel like there was the option of well if it's not working maybe it should end like that's a that's a that's a viable it's like if you can fix it if it can be fixed but if it can't something like something's got to give otherwise the the resentment and the bottled up and smushed down negative feelings that are being experienced in this in this system are going to pop out somehow and it you know i imagine with like the the frustrations of careers and stuff too that that idea of well it's this is this is what i'm doing this is what i got to do i just have to suck it up and just continue doing it where it's all you're there are all these little fractures that are happening in a life that's dealing with that type of stress and like low-grade continuous trauma that just it spreads out for decades um and never never being presented with the option of well you could change you could do something else. Well, never not having any any models for alternatives. Yeah. So um, it's yeah. I mean, there was a tremendous amount of closet alcoholism in the town where I grew up. I hate to say this stuff about the town now because to do research for this book, I went back and it's this. I have to say, it's this still this um, bucolic suburban starter town. It's mm-hmm. many of the houses are small enough that um, it would be the first house that families just starting would buy. It had really good schools. It still has really good schools. Um, it has a very um, exemplary, I have to say, neighborliness about it, uh, which, um, you know, I think neighborliness is in really short supply these days. Yeah, I, um, I, I would tend to agree with you on that point. Yeah, and it's a huge loss. I don't think I appreciated it. I felt it. I experienced it sort of as claustrophobia when I was growing up there. And because I knew without knowing it that I was not going to fit into that kind of life yeah it's why i didn't want to become a teacher you know i went on to have what we used to call a checkered career (laughs) because you have to say something when you don't have an easy answer to what are you right yeah um but the other thing 
is that to be successful in anything career wise, mm-hmm. um, you know, requires a lot of hard work. You have to, you know, hopefully love what you're doing and you make sacrifices. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly my life as a writer, you know, there have been friends over the course of the years who have said, you know, I, uh, how do I have the career that you're having? And I'm not, believe me, I feel like I'm, I'm on the cusp <laughs> of the career that I always wanted to have. And it's taken a long, a long time with a lot of hard work. Yeah. And so I would sit down and maybe I remember one, um, one conversation over a Chinese dinner with a friend who was writing really good poetry and wanted to know what I did to start getting published in good places. And so I said, well, I spend this much time every week doing this and I spend this much time doing this and my rejection rate is (laughs) this big, I should say, and the acceptance rate is this big. And, uh, And I've had to learn to live with that and how not to keep knocking on closed doors and how to find doors that will open and all the while doing that while trying to preserve my creative energy and move myself forward to grow myself and uh, get better at it. And, um, and, and she listened intently. I don't think I realized how long I went on or what a grim picture it was until she said, well, I just don't have the energy for that. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, I think it's, a, I think it's a wonderful thing to find a day job that you like that can be walled off. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I, I really stumbled into cabinet making. Like I've had a very small experience doing woodworking and light carpentry stuff throughout my, my youth. And it was really just through the good graces of someone that I knew briefly at my MFA program that was at a shop that was looking for a shop assistant. Um, and I think recognized almost immediately that I had uh, pretty heftily massaged my resume, but I was willing to take a chance on me that like, I, uh, wow, this month was, I think seven years. Yeah. I've been there for seven years. Um, but I, it's not a passion of mine and I don't dislike it. It's a, it's a, on the, on good days, it's a pretty straight neutral, which is like, oh, that's great for me. As long as it's not a net negative in my life, I'm willing to tolerate (laughs) a great deal of things. Um, And it really is like the, the fact that like, I don't, I, there's nothing that I, when I leave work, there is nothing that I have to do regarding work that needs to take place until the following morning when I arrive back at the shop. It's, it's, it complete, it feels like, it feels like what school should have been. Like I'm, I'm, I have a growing, um, dislike and distrust of homework that began when I was younger and I didn't have the right vocabulary or the right awareness to, to think about really truly like, why does this bother me that I have to do work 
when I get home from school. But mm-hmm. I feel like my job now is what school should have been. It's like you, you put in your time, you do what you need to do in a day, and then when you're done, you're free. You can go do whatever the hell you want to go do. <laughs> um, I, was, I was very lucky. My father was a uh, originally a junior high school teacher, and then he became a guidance counselor in a junior-senior high school. And um, he would have agreed with you. He uh, he felt that you were a better student if you were a more rounded person. And come, you know, all these tests that we took back then, that, that there's even more of them now, and they're even more sadly crucial to the paths that are open to people before those tests. And he administered them. He worked for what was then ETS in Princeton as a consultant in summers. Um, The night before the test, he would take us out for pizza and we would watch a movie and go to sleep happy. And, you know, no cramming. Don't even think about it. You'll yeah. do your best if you're relaxed. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I mean, when I had a business career, I did a lot of hiring. And sadly, I did a fair amount of firing, too. And um, over the years, uh, the candidates that I interviewed were more and more uh early on career track candidates uh, who had specialized, you know, they had looked upon college as a pre-professional course. Um, Now we we can put engineering aside because, and medicine is probably in the same boat, but because there are certain things you have to know to go on to grad school. But, they these people were were you know I would start asking them, well, what's an interesting book that you read recently? And there was you know no response, um, and uh, and it it was dispiriting. Yeah, I, um, I can imagine. Yeah, geez. So um, anyway, and I hear the reading that I do, you know following corporate America the way if you're a citizen of the world, you have to know something of what's going on in the world. There seems to be a return to looking for employees who have studied other things, who are, have other interests, who, um, so I'm glad to see that happening. And I think hopefully if anything good comes out of the pandemic, uh, it will be, a more, you know, uh, more room to choose what kind of life you have. Yes, I, I'm 100% on that point. I mean, I, I feel like the the ability for people to work from home as a a thing that has, I, th- I think the, the ability for, for companies to operate this way has been there for a long time and they have been very, very reluctant to employ it. I think for a whole host of reasons, but the fact now that it is a thing that they had to do in order to keep functioning. And now, now that employees have gotten a taste of the fact that there can be a work-life balance so they can be a work-life balance that they, they have autonomy over 
is a thing that I feel by and large, no one's going to want to give up because I hope so. I really hope so. And I think, I mean, um, uh, corporate America and governmental America is not a supple beast. No. <laughs> and part of it is that the, the economies of scale mean that you set a system in place and I put skyscrapers in that system and corporate parks and and even mass transit, you know, everything that serves that kind of work experience. Yeah. And it's, you know, your your money is tied up in it. You've and then you invest in in work systems. And um, so I, I expect there to be a certain rear guard. We have all these investments. What are we what are we going to do with this real estate? What are we going to do with all this office space in um, buildings where the windows don't open? Yeah. Um, or where um, people don't want to spend an hour to an hour and a half each way every day getting from home to work because that was actually one of the things that I observed in Glenrock that the the um the town felt like a ghostly specter yeah from eight in the morning when the trains left until anywhere from six to seven to eight at night yep and um what came back on those return trains was exhausted. Yes. Yep. And missed out on kids' events, activities, even homework. Um, you know, all the things that I mean, I felt um, I felt very lucky being the child of a teacher in that town. We were on the, the wrong side of the tracks mm -hmm. economically uh, because most everybody else made more money and my parents struggled. Um, I mean, mind you, we were middle class. So this is, you right. know, yeah. but comparatively, um, yes, 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 yes. Yes, yeah. But, um, you know, my dad had off two weeks every Christmas, two weeks every Easter. He worked summers because he needed the money, but he had, you know, he was home at four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, I, it's something that I'm experiencing a little bit of that. I, I just moved into a, a, a new place with my partner and our schedules are almost complete opposite. She's she's a bartender. Um, oh, gee. <laughs> so she, yeah. Uh, uh, she has off Mondays and Tuesdays, um, so it's nice to be able to have those that time with her. But by and large, for the rest of the days of the week, I'll see her briefly when I wake up in the morning, and then if I'm if I happen to still be awake when she gets home from work. Um, but it's just the the like feeling like now that we're living together, really feeling the weight of like there's so much time that we both occupy in the house but not together. Um, I can't imagine how weird that is. It's it's really disorienting, especially the fact that we're we moved in at the end of August, and 
there's stuff that um, we kind of need to both be home to kind of put things away and arrange things. And it's been a lot of, um, you know, like I'll, I'll do some, some stuff and then text her before I go to bed be like, Hey, these are the things that I did today. Um, so she'll come home and sort of see the results of that. And then when I get home, um, she'll have done some stuff before she's left for her shift. So it's like very, very wow. disjointedly, um, in sort of independent of each other. We're sort of organizing things and putting things away. Um, but it's just, I, it's a thing that like we're both conscious of and we try to be, we try to maintain, the fact that we, that texting is a thing that, that we have access to now and that I can send her videos, I can send her links, I can send her just things. So if I'm happen to be hang, hanging out on the couch and I'm scrolling through Reddit and I see something that I think she would like, I can send it to her as a way of me just being like, I'm thinking about you. It's like you were, you were, despite the fact that you were physically distant from me, you were not a mentally or emotionally distant or very far away from my existence right now. Um, but I, the, I feel like the weight of a father in that instance of coming back from a career that is probably as high stress or more so than any, any, any other high stress career, um, coming home exhausted knowing that the sort of the life that they are subjecting themselves to is for the benefit of their family it, in a weird it's a very like of course, yes it's a, both a weirdly selfish and selfless act to be to be putting yourself in this situation but knowing that maybe consciously or unconsciously that they have that they've actively missed so much that they get their families for a few hours that night and then everything and then they go to bed and then they go back to work and everything is done in service of or i guess overtly or maybe directly their family but indirectly just the sort of the whole mechanism of the of the the work environment there that they're a part of and the work culture that they're a part of um yeah i mean like you when you said that there's a lot there's a lot of closeted alcoholism it's like that does not surprise me at all or and would not surprise me that any town that's experiencing something like that would have you know it's like the the pressure has to be released somehow and if it's not being released in healthy and dealt with in healthy ways it's going to manifest in really bad and unhealthy ways <laughs> yeah um, yeah so um well i wish you luck with your uh, dovetailed settling in <laughs> thank you it's been it's been an experience. This is this is the first time that I've lived with a romantic partner, um, and only the third time that I've lived with a roommate. So there's a, there's a lot of new experiences that are happening, but again, sort of independently <laughs> away from my partner. I'm having lots of these revelations. I'm just kind of hanging out in the house by myself. I was like, oh, okay, that's what's kind of going on. And I was like, oh, I sh oh, I can't talk to Morgan right now because she's at work and dealing with a rush. I'll tell her if I'm awake. I'll tell her tonight or send her a text tomorrow morning. But. Um, well, let me offer something which has some parallels. Um, in the 90s, in the late 80s and 90s, my husband worked a lot in Los Angeles, where I now live. Mm -hmm. But we were based in New York City. Oh. And we had my, my first, my last book, actually The Disheveled Bed, is a... Um, explores having what I called a commuter marriage. Ooh. I worked in New York. It was uh, over the course of that time, I was able to 
shift partly because it happened it was possible mm-hmm. i shifted more and more of my accounting work to servicing my clients remotely but i couldn't completely eliminate in person stuff mm-hmm. so i would spend half of my time in new york and half of my time out here with my husband and but let me tell you that was fantastic for my creative life so the you know i was lonely i felt like um why are we living like this mm-hmm. uh because i i loved him i wanted to be with him right yeah um, sure. um and yet the the kind of privacy of having an intact together home mm-hmm. and the stability of knowing he was there, although not exactly there, right. really freed me to use that time. So I would have these every month. Uh, I would do some accounting work back east where I would go, where I was. Um, but I would spend a lot of time writing. Yeah. And, uh, then, then eventually over the course of that time, uh, I had cheap portable printers everywhere we were. And I had a, uh, what was, what by today's standards was a dinosaur of a portable computer. <laughs> it was called the Zenith Super Sport, but believe me, you had to be like an Olympic athlete to schlep that thing around. Uh, but I did, and I, you know, it was a lot better than, than a typewriter. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, anyway, I, I think that my experience is with sort of inventing a life that works has been um, one of adaptability, sort of looking at whatever situation I was in would take me a while to see it clearly. Yeah. And then, and I always felt, you know, I said earlier that I knew early I had to leave Glenrock because mm-hmm. it was, it was just not going to happen for me in that kind of life. Yeah. Um, I think if you're a poet, you feel out of the mainstream in many ways. Yes. I, yes, uh, I, would, I would agree with that statement. As a writer, as an artist in the economy, your, your life is not like other people's. <laughs> that's and, true. Yep. and there's a certain exoticism that's interesting to other people about that. Mm-hmm. But there's also a huge level of ignorance. I mean, I make a point when something of mine gets published in a journal and I actually get paid something, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's never a lot of money. Uh, and um, But because people uh, understand things in terms of money, I make a point of telling them that, gee, I was really happy so-and-so paid me for this poem and they and i'd say do you want to know how much and they you know you could see the like it was like the, the slots in vegas you could see their fantasies going yep. and i'd say and i'd say they gave me 50 dollars and 
you know, then their their jaws would drop and they just didn't know what to say. And that to me was maybe that was a conversation stopper, but it was my sort of protest against the fact that, uh, okay, in the in the scheme of things, um, what is poetry? Yeah. But it is something that people turn to that gives them something that nothing else gives them. Yep. I, uh, I there was uh, my previous guest um, is a is a really close friend of mine who I've been trying to convince to write poetry uh, because they have. We explored this a little bit in the episode, but they have a, a trepidation around writing it. And one of the reasons is, um, I think one of among a number of reasons is that they are a very talented and accomplished uh, nonfiction writer. And because oh. poetry is fairly, I mean, not super adjacent to, but of the other writing styles, I would say that it is as close, it's closest to nonfiction essay writing as any other ones um but the 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 thought to go from something that they are very very good at to something that is adjacent but that utilizes the same skills but that they perceive themselves to be sucking at or at least very bad at for a while is is not like there's a cognitive dissonance and just a sort of like i don't i'm already up here on the mountain when it comes to writing i don't want to have to go back down to the start of it to come back up um but just the like we we talked about sort of what poetry is and what poetry can do in the at least the poetry that I I tend to gravitate towards because I know that there's a lot of different types of poetry and it functions very differently and people use it for very different reasons. But the poetry that I I tend to write and that I tend to seek out and and want to read, um, or is poetry that is essentially someone inviting you in to dream a dream that they had or to experience a thing that they experienced and and not a way that they're telling you the story but they're they're drawing you into this thing so that you feel it um and i i can't i cannot think of a better way to engender empathy in someone other than to to like invite them in some cases drag them urgently into an experience that you had and, and give them a new way to see a thing or a new way to experience a thing and have them come out on the other side change maybe not profoundly but they're going to be colored a little bit by the thing that they just saw and it's going to you know like their awareness or their mindfulness ideally will be incre- at least incrementally just widened just you know just a bit um and it's so like you said like i don't i don't feel with the exception of maybe music but in a sort of roundaboutly different way into experiences i don't i feel like there is something inherently special and unique about the experience of reading poetry and it is similar to what what we were talking about before that is both freeing and liberating but also disheartening that that experience occupies a the place in the sort of value system that we have in the united states of being just something that doesn't seem to be the the reason that there's not a ton of money and not a ton of uh i guess clout or accolades when it comes to poetry is that people i think just tend to not care or they don't see the that like there's not a value that they assign to poetry which on the one hand is really sad that they don't see a value in in engendering empathy or, or having sharing experiences with other people but on the other hand is like 
well, I mean, okay, maybe we can't, maybe this is a thing that exists outside of the value systems that we have of actually assigning like physical quantifiable value to a thing of like the, the, how much it, 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 you were paid for a poem, you know, it's like, it's great that you were paid, but the scale is skews very, very low. But it's also like, well, that's like, okay, that's like, I, I don't know. It's just, it's, I can't, it's in a metaphysical sense, it's difficult for me to imagine what I would be willing to pay for a poem to, like what I would be willing to pay to have an, because it feels, it feels like something that is, it's invaluable to have that experience, you know? And so it's like, well, how can you, how can you then turn around and try to assign? I mean, I do it with the press for the, the books that I, that I sell. It's like, I have to set a price point. And it's really weird to, to be sitting in with this thing. It's like, okay, well, I need a price at high enough that it's, I, I do, I do some justification to the time and the energy that I, I spent making this thing and working with the poet, but I also can't price it too high because no one's going to buy it. Well, like, I'm, ah. I'm sure it translates into some pathetic little, you know, pennies per hour. If that, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a labor of love. Yes. Uh, I mean, I think that what you were talking about so resonates with me. And I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, well, maybe for the last 10 years um, that, uh, well, I've never, I mean, if you go, I'm gonna make a broad statement. I'm going to say, if you go almost anywhere else in the world, mm -hmm. if you are writing poetry and your work is out there, there is a respect for the activity and for the writing. Yes, yes, I wholeheartedly agree. And um, here there's almost the reverse. Yes. Uh, and it's part of what it seems so sad to me about the insularity of the poetry culture. Yeah. We, are, we are we are our own only audience, pretty much. Yes. I mean, yes. in the book that I just published, I was really aspiring to reach more people. I mean, I uh, your comments about. Um, I'm putting words in your mouth, but <laughs> writing to engender empathy mm -hmm. is why I write. I write to engender empathy for myself, mm -hmm. and I hope that it will uh, bridge differences between people by making the particularity of experience interesting and compelling mm -hmm. to someone who doesn't have that or share it yes and so for me you know the the act of writing is twofold there's there's my process of trying to do justice to the to the extent of my abilities mm -hmm. with my material and then there's um finding people who are willing to pay attention to it yep. and um i like having readers that aren't poets it's sort of what can i say it's my goal 
maybe I shouldn't say that. Um, and, um, and the response to this book, Michael, has been devastating and heartening. Devastating. Uh, let me let me give the heartening first. Okay. Um, heartening in the sense that I'm going to say without exception, anyone who's actually engaged with me about this book, having either read it or heard it, mm-hmm. has wanted to share his or her or their own experience. Yeah. And. So uh, what's come into my life has been a world of associations, of largely difficult associations. Um, And yet the the need to share that, Mm -hmm. to feel like somebody is paying attention, somebody is listening. I find it very humbling and moving. Yeah. It's in a the one of the ways that I view poetry. Um, I I started I this uh, I guess this image came to me with music, but it is it has since shifted into poetry as well. That like you are basically creating a an emotional space for someone to exist in, and the fact that that you have been met with that sort of resounding need to out of people to outpour or to pour themselves out into the space feels like that is a, like you are doing your job as a poet, giving these people. And it's, it's, it feels almost like I feel on the one hand kind of sad that it, that with the, the, I guess the strength and the emphasis of the people outpouring into that space feels like that uh, shows that, or reveals that there's probably a lack of those emotional spaces for them in their lives on a day-to-day basis that they feel like they don't have a place that they can kind of drop their emotions into in order to get them out and to process them and to have them not ricocheting and pinging and, you know, just chewing up their insides. Um, and that's like, I, I can't imagine a, a more, the, the, the double honoring and humbling experience of being able to, to be the person that other people can turn to to be like, this is a thing that I can, I can empty myself into in a way that is like recuperative for them, which like that. I hope so. I think it is. Um, I, I, you know, it makes me sad that this wellspring of experience and need is swirling around in our society you know, the, the breakdown of um, the sense of our being a community. Yeah, which goes back to the what you were talking before about the, the neighborliness, in a sense. Um, yeah, I feel like there's, in, a weird, in an interesting way, the, the sort of, that is the place that poetry can occupy. And that is a... a, a not the the capitalist i guess connotation of value but like that is the value of poetry that is a that is a service that it can provide people and the fact that it is it's not 
something that we were talking about before of not knowing that there's an option or not knowing that there's a, a role model that you can turn to, to that has done that 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 sense of like it exists and there are people that use it in that way but by and large it feels like that is it's not an option for whatever reason for the majority of people to see this as a as a thing that like oh yeah of course i'm gonna go i'm gonna read poetry to to that this is a i mean i probably because at least in my experience that the way that poetry like the way that i was in i engaged with poetry and was taught poetry throughout most of my school was not on a um not to a degree of emotional intelligence or sort of emotional uh, processing it was very analytic it was very intellectual it was very you know like what does this mean you know what are the images how are the images working and it's like so much of the poetry that I deal with now and the poetry that I that I love and that I, I want more of in my life, it's not about it's not about analyzing it, it's about feeling it. Which to your point, like I, I it is it is a great joy of mine when I have like my my partner is not a poet. She she reads poetry off and on, but I, I she's usually my first reader. And mm-hmm. I I it's invaluable to me to have somebody that's not a poet because they're not they don't have all of the I guess the academic training and the sort of the weird mental constraints and limits that have been put on through years of schooling and she can honestly just tell me it's like I was really engaged in this point I wasn't really engaged in that point like I really love this line I love this image this really spoke to me and it's it's a it's a better litmus test for me to know like where the heat is in the poem and where what are the moments that are working and what are the moments that aren't working um, because it really is just it's it's feeling and if you if you feel it great if you don't feel it okay cool that's also valuable information for me to know to to figure out how to how to make this poem work the way that i want it to work but that sounds perfect it's you know to have someone in your life who authentically responds to what you've made yeah is rare actually i think and i think a lot of us get lost along the way between the models for poetry that existed when we were young mm-hmm. and the, as you were referring to earlier, the, you know, the plethora of styles of poetry, of uses of poetry. Mm-hmm. I think that as much as I revered poetry as, you know, when I was young, mm-hmm. the, um, the rhyme schemes, the metrical schemes, yep. the uh, artificiality of the constructs yep. intimidated the hell out of me and completely stopped me from expressing what was inside of me. Yep. Um, I mean, it's no accident that my mother gave me Emily Dickinson and E. <laughs> Cummings. Thank God, because against them, there was Shakespeare and yep. there was... You know, I think that I um, came into, I came to writing poetry at a time when those um, historical models were under attack or being revisited and broken wide open so that the direct emotional the the direct but intelligent uh, um, emotional life became the material of poetry and so i've been um 
happily exploring that now for a while and I hope I'm going to keep exploring <laughs> it until I mean a great thing about poetry is that you don't retire yeah just if you're lucky the ideas keep coming the um and they keep changing so you're not bored yep. um and um I like many people I think from what I've heard, uh, the the isolation of the pandemic was like uh, an artist colony like no other. And I basically wrote a whole collection of poems. Oh wow! Not not yeah, and it's called uh, enduring. Um, with a, yeah, with a um, uh, a hyphen between the N and the during. Mm -hmm. um, but you would you should not make any assumptions about what the subjects of these <laughs> poems because because a, a world of experience and memory and investigation became accessible to me mm -hmm. uh, in a sort of miraculously easy way. Wow. Um, and I feel a little guilty for walking away from this really terrible time yeah. with having made something out of it. Um, and um, so, and it's not what I thought I would be doing. You know, it's, it's actually this September 12th is, um, well, I didn't write for a long time after September 11th. Yeah. Um, and there's to come book, back to- There's what, a book in your collection that's about that. Yes, right? yes, there is. Yeah. And um, and that poem is dated a number of years later. Um, I did start writing because I'm a writer and I, you know, eventually I had to write about six or seven months later but believe me it wasn't like the dam broke it was very fragmentary for a long time and i felt ashamed of myself i have to say because all around me in new york city because that's i was still living there mm -hmm. prose writers creative nonfiction writers painters photographers playwrights, dancers, you know, they were all madly making something out of this experience. Mm -hmm. And there I was just shh, couldn't, couldn't get a word out. And, um, you know, I'm a slow responder, I've now learned. I mean, I am in workshops and stuff like that, but mm -hmm. um, but I think that process of coming back to words was um, something that people can relate to. Yeah. Well, that was actually a question that I had about, I guess, your process in writing the poems for September 12th. Like, were they... Was the poetry being written as a way for you to sort of explore and process the grief and the trauma that you went through? Or were they 
the result, like that they happen as a result of, like at the maybe not at the end, but at certain points throughout the processing of the grief and the trauma that you were that you had experienced. Well, I'm going to give you a third answer, which might, might be what might be what you're suggesting. But I started writing this book, these poems. Well, first of all, I started writing them as poems because I was already a poet. Mm -hmm. I said that guardedly, but I was a poet. Um, I wanted to contribute to the documentary record mm -hmm. of that day. And my experience was so, well, it was peripheral in some ways. I'm alive. Um, I didn't lose everything, mm -hmm. but it was the, the perspective from which I experienced the events, what happened in my life, the, um, what happened to those of us who lived nearby when the world moved on. Um, however, you know, there was a tremendous amount of boosterism and fake patriotism. Some of the patriotism was sort of natural because we had been attacked. I mean, there were people from 77 countries who died that day, but uh, it was, you know, to use an image that's been used a lot, it was a wound on our lives and uh, living a block away, it was a huge gaping wound for a very long time. Yeah. Um, and I felt that my experiences and my story were not being told. And I took on the task of telling them then over time, that um, just the same with um, Brian Turner's two books of poetry about being a soldier in, I think it was Afghanistan, not Iraq. The first one was based on his being on the ground, working with IEDs, having carrying guns, losing fellow soldiers, interacting with civilians and has an incredible, um, I think the title is called Here Bullet. It's an amazing book, mm -hmm. an amazing book. And then about five years later, he wrote one from the perspective of a soldier who's was no longer a soldier, whose tour had finished, who had come back here, who had gone through the adjustment of repatriating and re reacculturating. Um, and the experience of 9-11 for me went from being a, a first person witness to the immediate events to a long-term survivor and all of what that means. And, um, and those, you know, I, I thought, I thought the subject, there would be a discrete body of work. Mm -hmm. But in fact, my this is the fulcrum of my life, having witnessed this and survived it. 
it happened to me in uh, middle age, sort of early middle age. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably will be writing in reference to it, maybe not explicitly about it, but in reference to it for as long as I live. Yeah. And um, that that makes sense in a way. The way that I've thought about, um, I guess, sort of internal emotional landscapes and like the a sort of foundational, maybe not a foundational, but a, a fixture of my landscape that is now there that is a reference point that I see on the horizon is the fact that um, almost a decade, I mean, we have since gotten back in contact, but almost a decade ago, my brother stopped talking to me and like I went from one of the closest friends I had at the time to just radio silence for about maybe nine, nine and a half years. Oh, that's sad. Um, but it's one of those, it's like, that is a, that is a thing that is now like a part of my life. That is a reference. It is a like mental and emotional reference point that I have. And I feel like in, in a way that the, I imagine in like a microcosm and into very, very different results and effects that have, that have manifested in your life. But it feels like 9-11 as an event is sort of like when, like you can measure the United States of America up, like up to that point and post that point. It's like, it's, it's, it's different. It's fundamentally a different thing that we exist in, that we're living through now. And that's the sense that, that I got reading your collection that, that is the maybe not the defining moment but that is a moment that's like there is your life before this event and your life post this event and much the same like i i was living in new orleans when katrina happened but we evacuated so we were not affected like our our home was relatively we had a, a busted window and uh because we lost power our freezer blew open that had all of our like crab and seafood meat and stuff in it but um we evacuated so we weren't in New Orleans when it hit and we came back to a, a house that was intact and fine. Um, but like I, there are people that I know that, that lost everything or just moved away. Like they evacuated to some other place and then just decided to live there. And like, that is the, similarly, it's like that moment is this thing. It's like you, your life can be sort of divided and folded across that, that crease that this is, this is before the thing happened. And this is after the thing happened. And from ever, from that point, the moment that it happened forward, it's like that is always going to be a thing that just exists in you somehow. And it probably manifests in different ways and it has been processed through different ways, but it's still like, it's there. It's not going, it's not going to go away. You know, it's like, this is an, und- it's, it's just, it has put a stake down in your life. And it's like, this is it. This is the thing. Well, yeah, all of that is just brings up so many thoughts. I'm just going to lose half of them. But <laughs> and um, but I, I, one of the things that has happened is that I feel like this this notion that there's this country before that day, which to some degree was based on a lie, but it was a lie which we all sustained or most of us sustained one way or another, that that lie is no longer sustainable. And uh, the, the country is changing. 
I hope it eventually ends up in a good place. It's, but I feel like the awareness of that, the, that day as, um, as you were saying, the fold in the paper, that, that, that people now understand that things have changed and accept that in ways that they didn't for a long time. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe it took all of the other horrible things that have happened in order to, you know, to pound that stake in. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember in the early years after 9-11, number one, the government really did had no physical ability to evaluate what we all knew was a toxic dump site. Um, they're, literally, their machines didn't work, and they didn't know their machines didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were busy telling us and telling the landlords and telling the businesses that, you know, to be patriotic, we should embrace our old lives, which yep. proved for many of us absolutely impossible. Yep. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, living in a time when there were, there were, you know, there were toxins in the air um, where there was death all around. I mean, you have, you have many poems about that and one specifically about the, you you developing asthma as a result yes. of, of, of being, you know, like re returning to your, your apartment on numerous occasions. Well, I'm not even sure whether the asthma began, uh, was the result of those visits back mm -hmm. or whether it happened when I was on the Staten Island ferry oh, and yes, the yes, towers yes. fell because that cloud of dust was huge. Mm -hmm. When I eventually could see it from Staten Island, it you couldn't see any outlines of the island. You couldn't see any buildings. You couldn't see beyond the cloud further north. And, um, and that was, you know, an hour, a half or two hours later. So, you know, um, but it's true that I, uh, I did go back and we, the, the, the landlord of the building where I lived hired a crew to clean the apartments because the apartments couldn't, he couldn't charge us rent until the apartments were habitable mm -hmm. and what determined that word habitable was um was quite amorphous the word <laughs> he hired a crew a company called maxim and oh my god those poor people they were given a t-shirt to wear which said maxim maxim on m-a-x-i-m and they were sent into our apartments to wet wipe, HEPA vacuum, every single surface, which I say in the poem. Mm -hmm. Were they given masks? No. 
the only way they had of cleaning themselves off at the end of the day was a portable washing station in the driveway with nothing but, it was like going to a camp with nothing but cold water. I, I shudder to think what happened to those people yeah. who did this. Um, and yet they were largely immigrants. When we talked to them about taking care of themselves, they were so grateful to have these jobs. It made me, you know, there were levels of anger, there were levels of frustration, there were levels of hopelessness. Um, and, um, and there were a lot of poems that ended up on the cutting room floor, <laughs> which I, you know, uh, I was I was describing them to someone else who's an editor and said, "Well, how about volume two? <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, but I hope that I, I I appreciate what you said about how the book reads because um, although it's you know the experiences are mine and as particular as I can make them. Mm -hmm. I hope that they um, become, they serve as, as metaphors, as emblems for yeah. the larger changes in American life. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about like when you, when you mentioned that like this is the 9-11 for you is the sort of like that's the fulcrum or like the the thing that your life is sort of orbiting around now it it really it drew into um i guess better resolution an idea that i had about the sort of structure of your book that you presented in such a way that you have or the, at least the experience that i got is that you have a section of poems that feel like life pre 9-11 it's this sort of just existing in new york and the sort of the, the i think it's called it's cloud studies i believe um, yeah. just the sort of like it feels like the day-to-day -day just existence of of what it was like living in your apartment in manhattan and just that and then like september 12th is a is a long poem that is the sort of your i guess your description of of the of your experience leaving the city on the day of 9-11 and then everything after that is the sort of it's like the aftermath and then there's a, a section at the end that is like you know poems that i imagine some of them were written this year and some of them are just talking about your life after leaving manhattan and moving to, to la and just that sense of like even like the book acts as a microcosm is of your sort of the totality of your experience that it is is presented in the way that there is pre 9-11, 9-11 that happens pretty much smack dab in the middle of the collection and then things afterwards and the, the processing of the grief and the, the like your, your uh, the section on uh, Glenrock hit me harder than I, I don't know what I was expecting, but it hit me in a way that I was not expecting. Because um, yeah. it, it felt like, it felt like in a way that they, they were, those poems were functioning as almost like haiku, 
that you were distilling these people's lives down into these moments that were emblematic in some way of, of their of their bigger life and finding the emotional truth at the core of these things and it just it it was very arresting and i, I this brings up another thing that i was thinking about that um like so much talk is about 9 11 it's like that is the sort of that's the demarker that's the day that's the nomenclature it's the ideology it's the whatever it's the that's the moment and like the title of your collection is september 12th and the poem in which you you, in, in which you outline your basic like, evacuation and escape from Manhattan on the day is also titled September 12th. And in a way, it got me thinking, especially in relationship to how you were talking about that, like your life was like majorly, but sort of peripherally impacted by this thing. It's like you were not in the towers. You lived a block away. You didn't lose every Like your apartment was still there, even though y'all moved from it. You know, your husband was safe. Lots of friends that you had were safe. But it, in a way, it feels like it's, it's sort of creating that space to talk about the things that gets eaten up by the, the juggernaut that is the American response and experience of and sort of cultural memory of 9-11. That there was a day after and many days after um, I think one of the one of the later poems that you has has a refrain, um, something to that point of oh where is it? I know what poem you're talking about. Um, yes, where it's where you you list out all the the names of. This is for you. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that that idea that's like it is years later and counting that that's that's the sort of because I was wondering why it was titled September twelfth, um, and I, I wanted to ask you about that, but the sort of I guess like working theory and the, just the emotional response that I have is that it is a, is a, it is a way for people to think, or it's a, 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 a sort of indirect comp conversation to, and maybe a little bit in opposition to the sort of the, the monolith that is nine 11, that is the day that we think about and not the fact that like, it's it, in a way that we, that we more or less mythologize it, that it has become this, this, folklore for lack of a better word for the Amer like a new america yes that's, that's, those are all mythologized folklore and i wanted to refute that yeah or it, i it, wanted it, to offer my book as an um can i say antidote to that yeah and that's that's really what it was that's the experience that i had reading it that it was trying to wedge itself into and open up like a um, like a pry bar open up some space to talk about that like this is like we don't talk about what happened really afterwards like we do to an extent with like first responders and those people but you know it's like mostly we think about what happened at 9-11 and the people that went into the towers and the people that were lost in the towers and not the fact that there were neighborhoods upon neighborhoods and blocks upon blocks that were impacted by this thing and lives that were that were like this, the spotlight shifts, which is understandable because it's a tragedy and we want to give voice and give space to the people that were the victims of this tragedy. But over time, that our definition and our view of who is a victim of this thing narrows and narrows and narrows. And we, it feels like we've, at least, I mean, I personally, I know this for sure because I experienced it when I was reading this, that lost sight of like, oh, there's been, there's so many other people that were affected by this because like it happened you know it's like there's 
like toxic dust was exploded out <laughs> into the city and there are people whose lives were i mean thinking similarly about katrina just as because the only other touchstone that i have for something like this is just a natural disaster that like it affects but that was a that was a huge disaster yeah it's like it, it affects every aspect of every person's life that is living within a certain i mean to varying degrees you know, again those sort of ripples it's like the people that were near uh ground zero were like the most affected and then sort of it spiral it, it expands out but yeah just that idea of that i i had not i had not realized i had forgotten about until i was reading your collection i was like oh there was so many other people's lives that were affected by this thing and not in the way that is i guess like valuable to the media as stories that would that would garner airtime or garner ratings because it's you know it's like people that that have to abandon their life and it's you know it's like you come back and you you see the apartment you're like you try to live there and then you can't and you just leave and it's like it's it's harrowing in its own right but it feels very small and very personal and very intimate and that is not a thing that it feels like that's what would be going back to the sort of like value and worthy uh connotations like not something that feels like it's it's worth looking at despite the fact that it's very worth looking at because of the responses you had of all the other people that have stories that feel like they are on stories that feel like they are comparable to yours and that it was people that were living in the city that were directly impacted by this thing but not because they lost anyone it's just that their life was just completely upended because their lives were visited by tragedy to some degree and it had to change and it's like that's usually what happens when lives are visited by tragedy it's like they change in fundamental and major ways but not usually ways that are i don't know high viz for other people well i want to i want to come back to something we were talking about earlier sort of indirectly because i think that um first of all thank you for reading the book so carefully and for getting the book that i wrote that i wanted it to be and which took me a ridiculous amount of time to write. Um, but I feel that we were all affected by that day. It was, an, it was a communal tragedy. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was actually a worldwide tragedy because those buildings and New York held a symbolic value for uh, a large part of the world that nobody thought would, could be destroyed like that. Um, and um, this, the, the rush to mythologize, which I think was aided and abetted by the media uh, and I'm not going to go to this to the cynical place that it was for ratings or maybe that was a factor, but I I think that um, the body blow of those buildings being brought down and the way they were brought down took people a long time to internalize. Yeah, I agree. And accept and. Just the same as um, 
when you are very ill and experience a lot of pain, you're living moment to moment in that pain and medicating yourself in whatever way you medicate yourself. Mm -hmm. Eventually, that excruciating intensity of your day-to-day life, you cannot sustain it. And so your, your mind dulls the memory of it, which gives you, which allows you to give yourself permission to go on. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, um, for a long time after 9-11, we, um, most people, uh, used the myth and the, the common images, which were just, what can I say, ad nauseum repeated. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were repeated in our homes. They were repeated everywhere we went. And they sort of, it was numbing after a while. And so for quite a while, and the rush to go to war, um, Katrina shook us out of it for a while because that devastation was excruciatingly human. I mean, uh, and I want to say an aside, the FEMA that I dealt with, and the Red Cross that I dealt with after 9-11 had been so depleted that by the time Katrina came around, yeah. you know, New Orleans and that whole area, they, they, they didn't get it. They didn't, you know, they were, you know, there was a lot of mistaken help after 9-11, but there was at least the goodwill to help as opposed to the incompetence and the lack of will to really help. So, uh, but through all that period, uh, we were just putting 9-11 back in the box. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we're finally, have been brought so low by so many things that we cannot ignore it anymore. And so in some ways, even though I thought this book was done, and you're right, there are some poems in it which are quite new. Some of them would surprise you to know that they're quite new, (laughs) I think. But then there's obvious ones which allude to Mm -hmm. things that we've gone through more recently. And in fact, I'm 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 doing what I shouldn't do here. I'm not finishing what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> You're on the right podcast for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thank you for that. Um, um, but I do think that a acknowledgement of the complexity of what 9-11 did to us yeah. is beginning to inform how we reevaluate who we are and how we go forward. Yeah. And I I think that, I mean, especially in the wake of Trump and the sort of 
the the shifting and the like, polarizing of the the Republican Party and the right. And a lot of, I mean, I know that it was happening before 9-11, but I, I see a lot of, like, the groundwork being laid post 9-11 for sort of the, I mean, not just the right, but the sort of, like, general political landscape being sort of, like, the testing or the proving grounds was happening right, like, shortly after that event um, or that, that tragedy. And, um, I mean, I, I agree. And it's it's weird to think... And I don't know if this is a, a uniquely American thing or if this is a, a human thing and Americans might just be a little more tapped into this, but the sort of reluctance that we have to deal with major things in the history of, of our country that we need to deal with that we refuse to deal with or that we, we view through a particular lens um, probably similar to the like the dulling and just the coping that like it's it's too big and too too nuanced and we don't have the maybe the bandwidth or the vocabulary to or the space in whatever way to to talk about it in in the ways they need to talk about but it's it's been it's really interesting to think that like i mean hopefully the up-and-coming generations i mean i know like i'm i'm a millennial myself um and i like I would say the vast majority of friends that I have are in therapy right now, like actively processing and dealing with things. And I, I think that there's a, like the willingness to talk about like personal mental health issues or just like counseling or just the, the willingness to, for people to be like, I need some help processing and dealing with this thing. Um, I think is a, is a trend that feels like it is the, the more generations that, kind of experience that as a normalized thing and have access to it. That's and, definitely progress. I'm interrupting you. That's no, no. definitely in yeah. better. And I, th I think that, I, I hope that as, as like the current younger generations are, are the ones that are gaining power and gaining the ability to affect change in the sort of ways that it's, that it needs to be affected and changed, that there is, there will be a, a, a better sense and maybe a more willingness to sit down and deal with things of like, you know, we got it. We have the, there, there's things on the docket that we have to talk about. It's going to be painful. It's going to be ugly. There will be probably contentious at some points, but it's things that we need to address and deal with. Otherwise, like we can't, we can't function healthily as a country. Like otherwise this is function. It's just going to continue. It's going to deepen and it's going to get, just worse and worse and worse because no one's it's like a family that have all these problems that no one talks about like i not not to a, a major degree but like growing up my family was very cold and very non-communicative that there was things i know that were happening behind the scenes between my parents and just stuff that was going on that like my brother and i i grew up in a similar environment yeah and it's just yeah. the 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 just the lack of willingness and i i understand it like i'm i'm very much calibrated towards avoidance like that is that is at the core of my being if there's something that i don't want to deal with i will put it off as long as i possibly can until it is the only thing that i have left to deal with and i'm like i'm still i'm gonna wait just give me like one more day and then I'll... <laughs> you can't can i put it off a little longer yeah. i do i think that there's an aspect uh that's a larger cultural aspect of that and i i think that um 
because this is something that you alluded to and asked about earlier. I don't think America as a country is very interested in history. Mm. I think we all, except for the Native Americans that are left, we all came here from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Some of us were brought here forcibly. So let's put the issue of slavery aside, although it's the fundamental lie on which this society exists. Yep. But all of the rest of us came somewhere in the past to get away from somewhere else. Yeah. For either to escape, for opportunity, in desperation. Um, and, and that story is continuing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the fundamental situation of this society. Oh, and wow. if you leave somewhere else, you, part of what you're leaving is a society with a history which controls, restricts, mm -hmm. hurts you. Mm -hmm. So we do, we left that history behind. And as a result, we left a lot of history behind. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely, it feels like there is a, a tendency of Americans to like, like they, their history starts with the founding of the United States, which is like, I mean, that's all well and good if you're dealing with a sort of historical view of the country, but like there was a lot of shit that would happen before that took place that is sort of important to, to know about in order to really have like, it's, it's the, the, I guess the lack of context in order to have the context of, of understanding why America happened when it happened and how it happened. You need to know about all the other stuff that was happening in the world and all the things that led to like the events that led to that happening. If you just, if you just start it at um, like America happened, 1776 it start we we did it we we got there it's like yeah well, i mean yeah but no the, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's like you need you need to be aware of and I, I i to your point i think that that's that's true that there's a like there's there are certain types of history that i think americans are interested in like um martial history like wars and and that type yeah. of stuff well when we win them we're yes. interested in it yes exactly. <laughs> which is you know why there's so much stuff about the american revolution and like the civil war and world war ii world war one you know it's like the the big battles that that we came out very much on top of um but yeah it doesn't it seems like there is much more of an, an interest in the mythologizing or the sort of um I don't know. It's like almost making things mascots. It's like you, you take not a caricature, but you take the thing at the most, at the largest way that is easily digestible and present that as the, like, this is maybe not the truth, but this is what we believe in this thing. In a weird way, it's, it sort of it operates almost as like poems. It's like you're getting to the emotional, not necessarily emotional truth, but at least an emotional aspect, like emotional nostalgia for this thing of like, Remember, like, I mean, imagine, like, I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine Pearl Harbor operated in a very similar way. It's like, it was a surprise. It was a fundamental thing that got, it's like the way that the United States wound up in World War II. Um, but as a thing that, like, we look back on and we use as the pinpoint of, like, rem remember what you felt like when this happened and use that feeling to, it's like, 
hold on to that feeling, otherwise our enemy wins. And it's like, well, I mean, again, it's it's taken out of context that you don't you don't have the the rest of the experience to to flavor and color and nuance and make that emotional subtle. It's you just you get hit with the biggest like facet of this thing like the the most generalized and the far like spread version of whatever this emotion is and that's what it is they want you to feel it's like in in a way um like logos like what corporations how corporations use logos it's like it it pinpoints these very deep-seated things in your brain that make you want to read that that induce you or uh i guess inspire you to react in predictable predictable and expected ways as this in response to a stimulus and as a way of very much it's like it's a it's a control mechanism that they know how you're going to react so they do these and engineer these things and, well, make and they do you. sure they do research as to how to yep. plant the subliminal message what the right subliminal message is and how to most effectively plant it yep. i do think that there's coupled with you know my immigration theory about where America went wrong or what its essential nature is. I think that there's a, um, a desire. It's, it's the rosy eyed glasses, mm-hmm. uh, approach to everything. Yeah. And we don't have much tolerance for, well, coming back to what you said about the, family that you grew up in and what the emotional mm-hmm. levels were. What I've come to understand uh, in my writing life is uh, that um, uh, being honest is the toughest task I have. Yep. And I will give you an example relative to September 12, um, which shocked the hell out of me. I wrote the title sequence, Mm -hmm. which actually was once a lot longer and included not only the events of um, that day, or the 12 hours from the time I fled until I mm-hmm. was reunited with my husband, but continued through all the days that followed until we returned to our apartment. I saw it as oh, wow. a uh, an odyssey, a domestic odyssey, mm-hmm. and that that would be the natural conclusion of it. And interlarded in observations were were all was all kinds of information about New York, which I loved and which I knew a lot about, about the towers, about the apartment complex that I lived in was built on settled bedrock which had been excavated to build the World Trade Center. Oh, wow. The, the reason that at that particular location, they were able to build for then the tallest towers in the world and have them look so relatively delicate mm-hmm. um, 
was that the bedrock under lower Manhattan comes very close to the surface and it is one of the hardest metamorphic rocks that exists. Wow. It's called Manhattan Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. And so they, um, of course, drilling, you know, an, excavating a space for a foundation wasn't easy because of the rock, but they didn't have to use the fortifications and the steel structuring that would have made it look much more massive. Mm -hmm. But what to do with all of those, you know, it was like eight stories that they excavated down mm -hmm. under the footprint. Well, along the western edge of Manhattan were the rotting 19th century piers, piers where Walt Whitman ate oysters and where Robert Fulton uh, landed his ferry, and, um, and those were not usable anymore. So they dumped this rock among those rotting piers, and then they let it settle for, I don't know, 10 years or so before they could start building on it. Um, so, uh, you know, I just, all that stuff I just love, you know? Yeah. And I wrote a whole series of poems about what the neighborhood was like that was destroyed to build the Twin Towers because mm -hmm. it was a lively, multicultural neighborhood, mm -hmm. completely displaced. Um, and I'm, old enough to just remember it. Um, and um, what the commuter experience was like. So anyway, um, I completely forgot where I was going. <laughs> That's fine. Um, <laughs> Again, this is the podcast for that. <laughs> I, maybe I'll get it back. Okay. Uh, but um, I decided to eliminate that stuff. Although, it's it's somewhere <laughs> and it's still inside of me volume two um what i said volume two <laughs> yeah no i don't think i don't think anybody wants to read a volume two um i didn't want it the poem i didn't want the book to be condemned by nostalgia yeah i worked hard on that uh when i when i encountered the material about Henry Hudson's first mate and the early, in, the first encounters mm -hmm. between the Dutch and um, the, the, the local Native Americans called Lenny Lenape's. You know, I don't think you can make that stuff up. Yeah. That yeah. people were killing each other at the, at the first days that New York was discovered by westerners and you know um but i uh, i think we as a culture we reject or we have a low tolerance for stories which don't lend themselves to myth yes i i agree and i think to your point, I think that the the antidote to nostalgia is emotional honesty. Um, 
And that's that's something that I think more so than anything, like any other, I don't know if this is an artistic man- manifestation or just like, I am, I am against almost wholeheartedly any manifestation or nostalgia in any media, unless it is being used in a very like, in a way that is de- deconstructing the nostalgia. Um, because I see that as a, um, sim- similarly with sentimentality, like when I experience that in poetry, that it feels like it is a, a shorthand or a shortcut to an, a, an honest emotional experience. That they say that's like there's like the some sort of like focus research taglines or logos. Like there are these buzzwords and there are these images that they know or will elicit certain responses. They, being poets or writers who utilize this. Um, that there are images and words that, that will elicit certain responses and will get people to feel a thing without the writers themselves having to do the actual work to get the audience <laughs> to feel the thing yes, they want them to yes, feel. Yes, and, <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I feel like that is a... I, when I when I read your collection, it was a very I think what what hit me hard and maybe what hit me for like the Glenrock section why it hit me so hard unexpectedly was because it felt it felt emotionally honest and it felt like it did the lives of those people. It's like I I don't know any of any of the eleven victims that that you wrote about, but it felt in reading those little vignettes, it's like I could get the sort of the the essence the the quintessence of these people. Um, in a way that didn't feel nostalgic or or um, like emotionally leading me to this point, it felt like this is a like this is honestly like this is what they this is who they were, um, and that's what the collection as a whole felt like that this is a like it's not going to be. I didn't go into it thinking this way, and I you know, I was I guess vindicated in in not having this expectation of it being this thing that that is using those buzzwords and those those like on roads into the myth of 9-11 but it's very much a like this is this is a personal experience of what this day was like and what the ramifications and the aftermath of this day have been um in a way that was brutal like the fact that in in the i think september in september 12th there's a section where you need to go to the bathroom it's like that's a that's a ma- like that is a major concern that people don't really think about when they're dealing with having to evacuate somewhere. It's like, or you know, like that was something that like dealing with um, dealing with Katrina. I know it's like you don't think about when disasters happen, all of the amenities and all of the services that are suddenly cut off. Like during uh, like Ira just blew through New Orleans, uh, I guess a week mm-hmm. or two ago. Yeah. Um, and my parents and my brother weathered the storm at the house and then a day or two later wow. decide to leave um, because they lost power uh they were running off of generator that was quickly losing gas uh they had no water and it's just it's things that you don't think about like when things when things shut down and you're in an emergency state you have access to nothing and there are these concerns of like how am i going to go to the bathroom and that was just a, 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 having that moment i was like oh wow that that feels so like it's a it's a thing that if this was a story that was lending itself to the mythologization of 9-11, it doesn't seem like this, that wouldn't fit because it's too human. It's too, it feels like too small of a concern. But the fact that it's like this, this small immediate concern that you have that is a fundamental, it's like, 
this is a thing that I that I'm experiencing that I'm trying to figure out like in the midst of all this rest of this chaos like there is this personal turmoil that is also happening like I can affect this I can handle potentially this, but I can't even I can't even handle this. Or what if I wet my pants? Then then it's really gonna be difficult. Right. Yeah, and yeah, it's like there's just that that idea of like all of these like in a in a way, I mean, only in, in a similar way because it, this is a disruptive act, but like moving into this new house and having all these boxes and all these things places and being like okay, I need this thing to get ready for bed. Like, I need I need my toothbrush or my toothpaste or whatever. Where the hell box did I... Like, why didn't I label this? I don't know where it is. And it, you, suddenly it's like, dude, there's this franticness of like, the, the one thing that I have in my life right now that I can control that is similar, that is known to me as the routine that I can establish by going to bed and I can't even manifest that correctly in this moment. I'm going to lose my goddamn mind. And it's... <laughs> Well, and, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody who hasn't put aside the things that you thought you were going to need. Yeah. And then there's some crucial item that yep. you completely forgot about. Yep. Um, yeah, just those those things that you overlook in those moments of like, okay, I have this list. I have all these things planned. I know this is the things that I need. And then you're gone and you're like, fuck, I totally yeah. forgot this other thing that is essential that is hinged like the three other things are hinged upon having this other thing and I totally don't have it and I don't know where to get it and yeah it's it's so it's yeah. like that moment felt so like in a weird it feels weird to say this about a story about the the tragedy of 9-11 but it felt so like wonderfully human in that moment to have this connection of like Oh yeah, okay. I've I've also like not in the same way, but I've also had that experience of just being somewhere and you're like, I there's this thing that I have to deal with, and I am woefully unprepared to figure out how to deal with it. And it's just like, I okay, oh sure. I I don't know how this needs gonna get met, but <laughs> let's just see what fucking happens. <laughs> well, thank you. You're the first person that's mentioned that. And... <laughs> Uh, and I'm I'm really grateful to you. Um, I mean, I and I, what you said about the what I call the victim portraits. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had a a sort of sacred task yeah. to do right by them, and and um, I feel very lucky that in the memorial material which I culled for those details that at the time people things were still fresh enough yeah that people were willing to tell crazy little anecdotal stories yeah, and which to, and to that that point it's like those felt also wonderfully human that there are these weird little details about things that like Yes, of course. It's in the the feeling of I mean one of the reasons why I, I love haiku is the sort of the bringing like the honoring of these moments like these small like fundamentally like not meaningless but fundamentally just like minute quotidian asp like moments that our lives are comprised primarily of it's like the meat of, of your life is composed of these small little moments that just sort of stack and extend and extend and extend and that's where i think the real flavor and the real color of your life manifests is in these really small just everyday things that happen and it, those poems to me felt like 
they captured those weird small little things that feel like it's just it's just part of everyday life but it's a really weirdly unique thing about that person's life that is everyday for them but when you look at it from the outside it's like oh wow that's really that's a unique like the um the guy who said that he doesn't have uh clients he has friends mm-hmm. and like just the the pe- the fact that people his his employees move next to him like into the neighborhood so that he could have yeah. and have like barbecues it's like that's that was an everyday thing for him and probably not a thing that he ever thought about as that this is a, a how his life is turning out but looking out on the outside it's like, oh that's a really like to see that small to to turn that lens onto that moment and in that moment find the microcosm that is the like endemic of the life itself it's like that's yeah i i imagine that that was an unbelievable like a herculean task to 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 mold those poems and those lives and get them down into these these little like snapshots basically of of a thing that like and you the fact that you reference like photographs and and a number of them of of those moments of like this is like if you could take one picture of someone's life and you're not going to capture all of it but if you could capture some essential quality of it that's what those poems felt like to me that they they caught something that is not the totality of but something that is essential to the way that these people lived and who and how they were well i will tell you that thank you very much um I will tell you that word, word for word, I probably worked harder on those short poems yep. than anything else in the book. Totally uh, there's a couple others, but uh, as a body of work, and I want to, um, I want to say that they're all, um, uh, they're all ha- what are called hay sonnets. They're all fourteen lines long but they're very short lines. And it's a form which was invented by a uh, poet whose work I revere, Mona Van Dyne. Uh, She was, uh, she had a big career in the, uh, I would say, 60s, 70s and 80s. She ended up being the poet laureate went before it was officially the poet laureate, but she was. Oh, wow. uh, and uh, she lived her whole adult life in the Midwest in um, in St. Louis. She taught at Washington University. Um, but she was always out of sync with whatever the poetry flavor of the decade was. Mm-hmm. So in um, the first decade of her life, she was writing free verse before the 60s. Then in the 60s, when free verse became the thing, she decided to devote herself to formalism. Um, and this sort of bouncing back and forth went through her whole career. She's a huge body of work. And late in life, she invented these very short-lined sonnets. Um, which I uh, found very effective when I read them. And since a lot of the, originally a lot of the book was in sonnet form, it is not anymore. You will, if you go back and look, if you can bear to, there are some residual sonnets or heroic sonnets or near sonnets. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was the predominant form and these portraits when i decided to write them in this abbreviated sonnet form 
we're going to be obviously a visual sort of concrete poem equivalent of for their deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but then the, the sort of carapace, the sonic carapace went away. But I, you know, I, what can I say? I just love those people. <laughs> it probably comes through. I, I didn't know any of them. I mean, I, I, because I knew the town they lived in, mm-hmm. I, I had a leg up on right. seeing into them. And because they came from the town that I grew up in, they gave me a leg up on writing about 9-11. Yeah. For which, you know, you can't put words to that. Yeah. I do I do want to come back to the thing that I lost track of when I got when I was talking about um, you know, the geology of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to truth telling. Yeah. So after I finished um, the September 12th sequence, I have my own first I, mean, I have poets that I show work to as I'm writing. I'm sure you do too. Mm-hmm. But the first person to read the whole thing was my husband, Tom. And he, when, when he was done, he said to me, but you didn't write about the three most difficult things. And I had not. And I had not realized that I had not. Mm-hmm. And the effort it took to go back to those places yeah. and write it. You know, he, he, you know, he said, you don't have an option. It's incomplete without that. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'm glad he saw it. And, but, um and so those parts happened fairly recently mm. so i carried those things that i saw around inside of me without giving voice to them except in conversation to him not to anybody else even um for a long long time um and so you know, in, in the home I grew up in, fighting was avoided at all costs. Uh, we were not supposed to lie. But in fact, when you can't fight, yep. and when certain words were prohibited, yep. how can you not lie? Not lie? Yep. And... And when this happened with these incidents in September 12th, I thought to myself, wow, that inhibition, that prohibition is still with me. And uh, so I, you know, I feel like my personal goal is to at least see Clearly. Yeah. Then what you do with it is something different. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think that for, I, I think that that's a, a very important point. I think that for any, any aspiring or any aspiring poets or any poets that are at any point in, in along in your process and your, your writing life. Um, I think that that is a, that is a starting point and a touchstone that needs to be arrived at often is, is the ability to see honestly and see clearly. Um, because otherwise like you can't how can you have how can you how can you have a fidelity to an experience and be able to manifest it in a way that is that is that does justice to the experience and allows people to tap into the emotion of that experience and the experience of that experience if you if you're not in a place that you're approaching it like you don't see it yourself yeah how can you possibly expect somebody <laughs> else to see it um yeah, I mean, I think when you're, I don't know about you, but certainly when I'm writing, I want to make something beautiful. Yeah. Now, there's all different kinds of beauty, mm-hmm. and I bring the readings of a lifetime with me mm-hmm. um, for a recent, a different podcast recently. The um, This person asked me, uh, it's mostly a podcast around my reading some poems and then talking about them a little bit. Uh, but then for the fifth poem, this person wanted me to pick a poem in the public domain that had meant a lot to me. Ooh. And so, wow, hard to decide. <laughs> and he didn't want a really long poem. Mm-hmm. And and coming back to what I said earlier, I would say, I mean, I have a historical love of poetry, but the poems that have meant the most to me creatively mm-hmm. are 20, 20th century yep. and 21st century poems. But I decided to pick a Keats poem, Ooh. which sort of rocked my world when I first discovered it. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard poem to read it's about an excruciating existential situation. Um, but it's written by Keats. So it has an elegance and a, a sweep and a rhyme scheme, which make it hard to read so that that, that crisis is, is palpable and present. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so sometimes when I'm writing that the desire to go there, to give yourself the pleasure of, you know, music and internal rhyme and mixing high and low and, and all those things that are so much fun, you get carried away. And somehow the, the kernel of truth can be sacrificed yeah 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 that's a that's a tough thing to to find that balance between being emotionally true but lyrical and presenting a thing in a way that is i mean maybe not necessarily appealing but at least like it feels good and it sounds good to have like to read or to be read aloud at you know um Hmm. and that that can take many many forms yeah yeah 
I mean, part of what I think is, I mean, I don't obviously don't write spoken word poetry. It's not my diction. It's it's not my material, really. Mm -hmm. um, but part of what I do do esteem about it is it's returning us to the oral tradition. Yep. Yeah, there is um, definitely power. It's such a different energy and so much it's such a different level of urgency and power to hear poetry that was created to be led to be read aloud and performed. Yes. To experience it in the in the form that it was intended to be experienced in. That it is a it's a, a wild thing to be sitting in the audience than to, to to have to have that. Yeah, at at my I had an in person small launch reading uh, on September twelfth outdoors in our yard because and even then a lot of people wouldn't come. I understand we only we asked people only to come. I'm sorry to say if they were vaccinated. Uh, because I knew that people wouldn't come, many people wouldn't come if they thought they were going to have to be even in a garden with unvaccinated people. Many people with kids whose kids are in school now didn't come because they feel like they're around their kids and their kids are in a huge world. And um, But we nonetheless, we had a, a, a lively crowd and... Um, that poem that you referenced before with the recurring phrase at the end of the line, mm -hmm. you know, that poem is a huzzle. Mm -hmm. It's a Middle Eastern yep. Arabic oral tradition uh, type of poem. Mm -hmm. And um, I deliberately chose to write that poem in that form for this book. And I decided to read that poem. I probably never read it again because it's very uh, idiosyncratically personal. Mm -hmm. However, uh, quite a few of the people that are mentioned in that poem were in there in person or on the Zoom. And I thought, okay, this is my chance to read it for them. And I explained to them about this recurring phrase at the end and... Um, I said, if you were experiencing this kind of poem in a in a, a cafe in, I don't know, Amman, Jordan, say, I'm trying to think of a safe place where something like this might be done, um, the audience would, once they figured out what the recurring phrase was, the, the audience would say it out loud when you got to it. Mm -hmm. And I said, I hope you will. And um, and I helped them figure out what the phrase was. And um, these being Americans, I didn't hear anything. Mm. But I saw a number of mouths saying the words. And I thought, okay, we need more oral tradition poetry yeah i mean it's it, i think what what besides um spoken word i think the place where that tradition exists now is pop music 
and it has for many, many, many years. Oh, interesting. I never, I never thought about that before. But yeah, I, I think you're right. Wow. That's the reference where people know the words, and mm-hmm. you know, certainly at concerts. Oh you yeah. Know, you know, everybody's singing along. I mean, yeah. <laughs> to the extent where you can't actually always hear the person that you came to perform it, hear perform it, but. But, you know, those are the communal, that's what the communal poetry is today. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I never, I never really thought about that before, but yeah, I, I think you're right. Huh. Um, okay. Well, I have, I have three final questions for you. Uh, all right. <laughs> two of which I, are traditional questions that I ask for all of my guests. And the third one is a question that I think I might start asking all of my guests because I'm, I'm curious about this. But um, what is your relationship to birds? Because I saw in your bio that you are an avid birder and I noticed uh, a lot of birds show up in uh, throughout the poems in this collection. And I'm just, I'm, I guess a, whatever the rung below amateur birder is, is probably where I'm at. But I'm currently working on a manuscript that is... Um, Every poem has a title that is a bird's name, and the poem that follows is a sort of emotional rhyme to that bird, or at least a personal emotional wow. rhyme that I have. Um, wow! So I'm I'm just curious, like what what your what your relationship is and experience of birds has been in your life. Um, my experience of birds is largely a a meditative experience of observing a a parallel universe which is largely incomprehensible but which in which there's mutual acknowledgement um so i um i'm not a uh what's called a lister Mm, i i I'm only interested in actually really seeing the birds. And if I don't see something which is to be seen in a special location, it's fine with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was Before I was a birder, I was a hiker. Okay. And... Um, and uh, my knees are not so great anymore, so my hiking is more restrictive. Mm-hmm. But adding birds to the experience of walking through a wild natural environment, it just enriches it for me. Okay, so they're they're like the the uh, adding a spice to a walk. Like if you could add a yeah. if you could add a, a garnish or a, a condiment to a walk, they would be they would be birds. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not even a condiment. Maybe more like <laughs> a red raspberry and almond butter sandwich. Ooh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Um, do you have? So this is a, a sub question, but is there? Um, I guess in your in your pantheon potentially of favorite birds, do you have like a top, a top handful that are your like that always? I guess when you think of like a bird, these are the first birds that come to mind for you. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I like, um, shorebirds. Mm, okay. 
Uh, and among shorebirds, I particularly like oyster catchers and um, curlews. Uh, I don't know if I know what those are. Curlews are um, about the size, a little smaller than a gull, okay. and they have an incredible curved bill, Ooh. which with which they extract things deep in the wetlands in the mud. Um, we have uh, a much wider variety of hummingbirds in California than you have back east. Mm -hmm. And we have a, a local uh, species called an Allen's hummingbird, Ooh. which arrived in California when uh, some geologic plates collided. And it's, it's expanding its range. It used to be just in this hunk of land, which landed in southern los angeles and but now they're they're and they're they're um they have green sides and uh sort of um reddish backs Ooh. and beautiful gorge red gorgets um and we have breeding allens in our yard oh, that's fantastic. and we've we've over time we've converted as much of the plants as possible to hummingbird food. We don't put out feeders because um, I don't think sugar water is any better for them than it is for us. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and we have year round population and we have nests every year. And sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not for different reasons. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some exotic warblers that I've seen. Um, I love woodpeckers. I mean, there's hardly a woodpecker that I don't love. <laughs> and I've had some wonderful sightings. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there are, I have like two that are, like top tier for me that that are i think probably my favorite birds and then it's just a sort of cascading list of all the other yes that, where to stop yes yeah. what are your two um uh gray a um gray catbird and a mississippi kite oh wow yeah they're both wonderful birds so it was like growing up in so i i lived in new orleans until i was i don't know like 20-ish, and I lived in Louisiana until I was about 23, 24. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't officially summer until the cicadas were out and the Mississippi kites came back. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and I think, I don't know if we, if they ever made a nest, but we definitely, there were, for a number of years, there was at least like one or two that would hang out in the really tall oak that was across the street from my parents' house. Um, and you would, uh -huh. would go outside and just see like it hanging out on top and then it would just, you know, they would just be soaring around catching cicadas mm -hmm. and dragonflies and other stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I also, I've been having a growing appreciation for, for kill deer. Um, oh, yes. Cause that was another like weirdly common around, um, like we had a lot of like New Orleans is like marsh and it's like, we were close to the river yeah, and it's like yeah. wetlands and stuff, but they would, Weirdly enough, they would show up a lot in, like, we had a minor league baseball team that built a stadium sort of 
in some area that was wooded and forested and they would always be in that like parking area hanging out in the evenings during the um the baseball games them and night jars would be flying around the, oh. the, big, the big stadium lights catching little bugs and stuff but yeah probably good food mm-hmm. yeah 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 <sighs> okay so my second question is um if you have the vocabulary for it uh what is your internal landscape like it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical landscape. I've had a guest on whose internal landscape was brightly colored, uh, swirling frosting. Um, <laughs> so just, oh, I guess whatever, like when you, if you were to close your eyes and just think about like the space inside of yourself that is just existent, like what is the first thing that, that comes to mind for you? Um, walking along a moving body of very still water. Ooh, okay. Hmm. Or is it in a, I'm assuming in it, maybe not, I shouldn't assume, but is it, a, is it in an area that is forested or is it, is the, the water the thing that is the, the highlight of, of this landscape? There are some trees, but it's not forested, and the okay. water is the the this the most significant okay part of the landscape. Interesting, and the the landscape for you is the act of walking next to it. It's, it's yes. that, that motion. Interesting. Okay, hearing it, um, feeling it's sort of deep movement and peacefulness okay that's really lovely i i have i have a, a working theory i don't know i don't know if i'll ever get like an actual hypothesis going on this thing but i have a working theory that poets that are nature leaning in their poetry usually have or at least the ones that i've talked to so far have a um specifically natured themed internal landscape and i don't i don't yeah. have necessarily a reasoning behind why that is or a theory as to why that is but it's it's something that at least the one other poet that i've talked to that that really leans i mean my my personal one is is uh, very much a, a natural landscape and the one other poet that i talked to that also leans towards nature like heavily towards nature in, in his writing also has a, a very like specifically nature, like a specific scene that exists as, as his internal landscape, which is interesting. I mean, it makes sense object for whatever reason, it just, it makes emotional sense that that's true, but I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if it's that there's, we intuit an emotional state inside and we go out seeking it outside and what, where we find a sort of reverberation for that is nature or if there is an affinity that we have for nature that we then use that as the sort of population for the landscape that that is the only that's the only place or the only emotional touchstone that we have outside of ourselves that we can fill in for a thing that exists in us um well it's interesting because it's an interesting question and i would be interested in hearing more about your research when you have more. I, um, yeah, I'm, I should. I need to talk to Andrew again. To, to I, I don't remember exactly what his what his was, but yeah, I'm, I will make 
I'll make a running tally the more the more that I do this. Yeah, because it's not something that I had ever thought about or articulated to myself. And yet that's where mm -hmm. I went. Yeah. So, um, and if I think about theoretically all the other kinds of places <laughs> that I could have gone, um, uh, it's both surprising and not surprising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's usually, that's the experience that I've had with people when I ask them this question, um, is that it's a thing that they never really, like, it's surprising because they never, they've never thought about it in that way. But when they arrive at the answer, like, oh yeah, of course, that's like, that's the only, that's the only thing that it could be is this, is this thing. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep you updated if I if I get any more okay, headway into, yeah, into my theories. Um, and my last question for you is, do you have a question for me of anything that you would like to know or potentially ask? Yes, I would like you to tell me something about your own poetry. Who? Um, let's see. Um, I think. My longer poems um, are, and by longer poems, I mean, like, take up a majority of a page, maybe not even a page long, um, mm -hmm. are at their core um, just extrapolated upon haiku. Interesting. Because um, I, maybe like midway through my MFA program, um, I had a consultation with a visiting poet teacher named uh, Aishin Hutchinson, who is a tremendous, mm -hmm. tremendous poet and a, a tremendous teacher as well. Yeah. Um, and up until this point, I was getting a lot of feedback on my poems that they were like very, they were very strongly and evocatively imaged, but were very murky as far as to what those images meant. Like there wasn't mm -hmm. a foundation that I that I gave people to sort of stand on to allow them to sort of contemplate and extrapolate out into these abstract ish images that are very, very vivid, but are disconnected from anything. Mm -hmm. And when I had my consultation with Aishin as a part of a class that we were taking, um, he basically told me the same thing that that was his experience in reading my poetry. And he advised me to um, if possible, seek out poetry that was image heavy, but also concrete in the sense that the images were physical things that you could feel and you could experience. Um, and at that time, I had collected, I think, like one or two haiku anthologies that just for some reason, like I wasn't really reading them, but for some reason, it felt like I needed to have them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um after and i didn't really know i mean i knew about haiku what the average i guess like co college student would know about haiku which is a i think at the time a lot of misconceptions about the form um so after that consultation i went home and was sort of looking through my my book collection and trying to see if i had any poets that that or any collections that that would fit that bill and i was like well from what I kind of remember of poetry or from haiku, it is small image poems. That's basically what they are. So I cracked open a, an anthology and started reading it. And it hit me at the exact right point in time in my life and fundamentally changed the way that I write. Um, 
Oh. And like I, I have, it's, it's a bit on hiatus right now, but I have a, a haiku writing practice. Um, but it has been, I've, I've recognized that when I write longer poems, I am basically trying to do the same thing that I do in haiku and just a little bit more, instead of just giving the, the bare bones in the, the essence of the experience, trying to, to flush out the experience a little more, but still use the sort of like image, like image and then linked to an image, linked to an image. And then usually there's a sort of contemplative question or something that I ask and then image linked to image linked to image and um but yeah after after that class and after reading that poetry collection or that haiku collection my writing like overnight was fundamentally changed um wow well i i'm i myself and i don't write haiku but i enjoy reading it um and um i'm drawn to the idea of uh, haikus being both discrete but also building down the page and I can't I I'm not going to be able to put my hands on it now because my uh, poetry library is somewhat in a state of disarray um, I know the feeling yeah and so but there is in one of Robert Hass's books hmm. um, not praise um, I, you know, I'll find it and I'll email it to okay. you. Uh, but there is a long meditative poem, mm -hmm. which is also a spiritual and a literal journey, mm. which is which is composed of in in as haikus. Oh wow! And it's really sustained. And it's when I I I, I was lucky to hear him read it. And that was an eye opener for me. Wow. Uh, I mean, first of all, he he's internalized that form yeah. so personally and made it his own. Yeah. And so that's doing this with that form is something you would only do if you had right. yeah. that yeah. inside of you. Yeah. But and it was successful it was sort of against what haiku is mm -hmm. but it seemed like what a great use to put it to yeah and I, so, I think i think in a in a general sense being a poet um has done this and i think in a more focused and more specific i guess maybe particular sense being like having a haiku practice has done this that it changes the way that you see things and the way yes. that you the way that you I guess just exist in a moment or exist in in an experience if you're if you're thinking of potentially any moment or anything that you encounter could have the kernel of an of something that like it's a small moment but it can hit something that is much bigger or can it can ping or like reverberate something that exists so much deeper in you on a on a almost like the bedrock on a like a bedrock level um that it may, I found that it has made me a lot more aware and a lot more observant of things of just always being trying to and also trying to be more open to experiences and more open to just the possibility of the things that are around me that each each thing could potentially and in taking that and extrapolating it out into my longer poems of just the idea that like 
any experience or any moment could potentially contain a poem. So it's best to be, it's best practice to try to be as open to those experiences as you can and have your net cast way, way wide and way out so that you can maybe hit or catch some of those moments um, that if you were, if your net or if your, if your gaze was a lot more limited or a lot more focused or not as wide, you would miss a the, the maybe not miss poems but just miss the possibility or the potential of all these things that you could you could maybe write about or that maybe contain you know that otherwise you wouldn't think that like oh uh going on a walk with my partner's dog on a night could lead to a haiku which it has on numerous occasions just because you're out there and you're paying attention and you see things it's like oh i that no i noticed that that made me feel a thing that's okay i can i can f like fashion this into into something that is is worthwhile and emotionally resonant hopefully to other people yeah i mean it's it's a way of being in the world yes and i like i said i think i think being a poet in in a really fundamental way is the same that it it it's a it's a way of existing and experiencing the world that is different than the ways that you would experience it if you weren't a poet or writing poetry or engaged in a, a poetry practice. Well, and, and I don't know about you, but I, I live for moments like that where, where you're, you're in your life and something grabs you mm -hmm. and takes you away. Yeah. So, well, I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> Me too. And I, I think on that note, um, I think that's a wrap for the episode. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Andrea, for, for being here tonight to talk with me. Um, this is a really, really wonderful way to start a week. Um, oh, it is the beginning of the week. Well, I really <laughs> enjoy talking with you, too. Um, and I feel like, you know, I could go on forever. Me too, which is uh, dangerous because I should probably be going to bed. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm waiting. For, I'm waiting for the beast in the in the house to come prowling for dinner because, <laughs> and you 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 know your partner is probably going to come home and say, "What are you still up for?" Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also yeah. wanted to thank uh, the audience, the listeners. I've been I've been watching some, where the plays are coming from. So my Australian audience, thank you so much. American audience, as always, thank you for listening. Um, yeah, this is a really wonderful time, and uh, I will talk to you all next time. <laughs>